its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. In the last 60 years, the average temperature across Alaska has increased by more than 1.6 degrees Celsius and is projected to increase up to 2.2 degrees more by mid-century. Alaska is particularly sensitive to this warming because its social and economic systems are closely connected to snow, ice, and permafrost. 80% of the state's surface lies above permafrost, frozen land that houses over half of Alaskan communities and the majority of state-maintained roads. Thawing permafrost can cause ground sinkage, resulting in costly damage to homes, roads, pipelines, and other infrastructure. Plus, thinning sea ice is worsening coastal erosion and threatening native Alaskan communities and ecosystems. Cryosphere changes are impacting Arctic plants and animals that are critically important economically, nutritionally, and culturally to native Alaskan people. Changes to the cryosphere are also likely to impact the magnitude and frequency of other types of geologic hazards, such as floods and avalanches. In the event of natural disasters, women and girls tend to be disproportionately impacted as they're more vulnerable to poor health outcomes, gender-based violence, and gendered inequalities in all stages of disaster events. Land collapses associated with thawing permafrost are causing contamination of water bodies and other natural resources that communities, and especially women, rely on regularly. Bodies of water that used to freeze and allow community movement are no longer freezing to the same extent, impacting access to food. In a harmful feedback loop, thawing permafrost also has the potential to release exorbitant greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Beyond Alaska, the changing cryosphere is impacting so many communities, from Maine to Minnesota, and from Iceland to Switzerland, just to name a few. In this discussion, we will learn from two organizations working to protect the cryosphere through various strategies, furthering global climate policy, organizing practical assistance projects, and leading the development of community adaptation plans. Please join me in welcoming Pam Pearson, Director of International Cryosphere Climate Initiative, and Dr. Christina Schadel, Senior Research Scientist at Woodwell Climate Research Center discussing the Permafrost Pathways Project. Once again, welcome to you both and thank you for being here with us today. Pam, I'm going to turn to you first for an introduction. Would you begin by briefly overviewing the work of the International Cryosphere Climate Initiative or ICCI? Thank you, and I'm really happy to be here. Um, I will say that I am also an ex-foreign service officer. I worked for state for 20 years, and so we're well represented here today. Um, one of the things I worked on was the, the Kyoto climate negotiations, and when I left state in uh, the early 2000s, I went back to work uh, on some of that, mostly related to the Arctic, at least at the beginning. And very rapidly, it became clear to me that not only were these places changing faster than any other place on the planet, 
But the fact that those changes were so fast and also the impacts it was having on these regions was really unknown uh, among my, my former colleagues, the climate negotiators. And so I started ICCI in 2010 to sort of bring this science into the policy realm. But a lot has happened since 2010, especially in the research space. And back when I started, we were talking a lot about the Arctic, especially as the canary in the coal mine. Um, now you can say in a way that the canary is breaking out of its cage. And the story of the cryosphere, the story of the snow and ice regions of the world is not just the ways in which climate change is impacting these regions in the ways that, that you raised very well in your introduction. It is that these regions are beginning to impact the entire planet. And what is unique about the way they work is that Almost all of these dynamics from cryosphere, and we focus on five, uh, sea ice, especially Arctic sea ice, the great ice sheets, uh, Greenland and Antarctica, permafrost, which you'll hear more about, so I'll leave that mostly to Christina, glaciers and snow, and also polar oceans. And that's because they are in particular acidifying as well as warming and freshening much faster than the other oceans on the planet. That's going to have a big impact on aquaculture in places like Norway. I'm speaking to you from Sweden, where there's also a growing aquaculture uh, industry. But um, these waters are already coming to a point, even at today's CO2 levels, where shell-building animals are not able to survive. And as CO2 continues to increase in the atmosphere, that is going to have a big impact on uh, all sorts of uh, fishing industries in the Arctic Ocean and the Southern Ocean. So really what we're talking about now to the policy world is less about how warming is impacting the cryosphere, but how the changes in the cryosphere caused by warming are going to be impacting the rest of the planet, especially if we continue to make temperatures rise above 1.5 degrees, which is the global goal. Um, there's increasing evidence that two degrees is way too high. At two degrees, there are no glaciers left in Scandinavia. There are no glaciers left in the Alps. They're very, very much more minimized in high mountain Asia, where you've got about two billion people who are reliant on these resources. And so the message is that we need to slow this down, we need to stop it, and the cryosphere is not something that's very far away. It's something that is impacting all of us uh, in one way or another. And those changes, we will not be able to walk them back because once ice uh, um, unfreezes, once it melts, it's with us to stay in its new form. Thank you so much, Pam. Christina, we are so happy to have you joining us as well. Could you tell us a bit about permafrost pathways? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me here today. This is an exciting opportunity to talk about our big new project called Permafrost Pathways. It uh, was launched in April of 2022 and is led by the Woodwell Climate Research Institute and then in close collaboration with the Arctic Initiative at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Alaska Initiative of Justice. So there are multiple components to the project, and I am mostly going to focus on the science component because that is my expertise. And uh, so the project brings together scientists like myself and Arctic residents, indigenous knowledge holders, and environmental justice experts, as well as climate policymakers. 
And the, the main goal of all of these people working together is to integrate permafrost science into global solutions for climate change. And um, the motivation for this work is really coming from the fact that the Arctic has been warming three to four times faster than the rest of the planet. And as a result, permafrost has been has started to thaw across the Arctic. And I'm assuming that many people are not quite so familiar with permafrost. So I'm going to quickly introduce the term. It is frozen ground that remains frozen for at least two consecutive years. And it consists of soil, organic matter, rocks, and ice. And in some areas, the permafrost contains uh, a lot of ice, and we call that ice-rich permafrost. And the ice can make up to 80% of the total volume. So the, the other thing that is um, important to recognize is permafrost is below ground, so you don't actually see it most of the time, but you can stand on top of it, and that's where a lot of the local impacts are being felt physically. So when permafrost thaws, it can have these catastrophic impacts for communities that live on permafrost because the ground collapses when the ice is melting. So when warmer temperatures penetrate into the ground, the ice can melt and the volume that has been previously taken up by the ice is, is gone. And so the ground, ground becomes really unstable. And if you have a house or an airport built on such um, ground, it will just collapse and break apart. And that is dramatic for whoever lives there. And then in addition to this local impact, there um, permafrost is also threatening our global climate. Pam uh, alluded to that previously a little bit. And if you don't live in the Arctic, you may not quite understand or be familiar with the connection of permafrost thaw to your specific location. But uh, permafrost contains a lot of carbon in frozen form at this point. The number is 1.5 trillion tons of carbon, which to me is a number I don't really understand how much that even is. But if you put it in context, it's about twice the amount we currently have in carbon in the atmosphere. So there's a lot more carbon in permafrost frozen than the atmosphere contains right now. And at this point, most of that carbon is stored and frozen in permafrost, and we want to keep it there. We don't want the carbon to go somewhere else. But if temperatures increase and it gets much warmer, the microbes that live in permafrost become active. They like it when it's warmer, and then they start decomposing the highly organic material that's in permafrost. And during that process, they release greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. That's mainly carbon dioxide and methane. And if we have more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it uh, reinforces the warming, the warming, and that increases more thawing, and then we have more carbon coming out. So it's this vicious cycle that just reinforces itself. And so permafrost pathways addresses the local impacts, but it also looks at the global issue that arises from permafrost thaw, and we work together to more effective climate change adaptation and mitigation action. Well, I was going to ask both of you to speak a little bit on the relationship between cryosphere, also specifically permafrost and climate change and the effects of that. I think you both have started touching that on that already um, in both of your answers. So let's get down to, to really the meat of this. You know, Pam, one of the focus areas of ICC's work has been reducing sources of black carbon emissions. I was wondering if you could explain to our audience what is black carbon and what some of its most common sources actually are. 
Yes. Um, and, you know, again, in, in terms of, of what Christina was speaking about, one of the reasons to keep temperature down, uh, just to give people a sense of scale, other than the huge numbers she gave, already at today's temperature, permafrost is uh, releasing carbon to the atmosphere as CO2 and methane, about the same as a top 10 emitter. Uh, we think it's around the size of Japan. But if we allow temperatures to go higher than, you know, at, at the very warmest temperatures, it's going to become an emitter uh, about the size of the U.S. or even China. That keeps on going because once the permafrost thaws, it's going to be emitting carbon at that level for 100 or 200 years, perhaps even more, which means that even if we bring our human emissions down to zero, we're going to have to offset these permafrost carbon emissions if we want to hold a stable temperature. So that's why it's so important. Um, in terms of black carbon, it basically is the product of dirty combustion. If you have something that doesn't burn well, then soot or black carbon is one of the products of that. Um, you can see this if you have a fire and the smoke coming out, out of that is very black, but actually black carbon is the very, very smallest portion of that. It's, it's referred to as uh, PM 2.5, really tiny particles. Human health-wise, they can come deep into the human lungs. Uh, they can cross the, the, the blood-lung barrier. There's some uh, uh, sense that it may even be causing certain kinds of cancers. And so it isn't something that you want to be around just in human health terms. Um, and so the places, the biggest sources uh, on the planet really are from what we call open burning, field and forest burning. ICCI focuses a lot on agricultural burning, burning of stubble, because that often spreads into wildfires and in a drier and hotter climate, you get a lot more wildfires. And there's no really reason to use burning in agriculture. It's not necessary. It actually degrades the soil. Um, another important one, the second largest, is from stoves of all sorts, mostly cook stoves. But what we focus on are uh, heating and cooking stoves combined, which you often see in cryosphere regions and mountain regions because it's cold. And so you need that spillover heat or, as a lot of people say in places like Vermont and Minnesota or Alaska, they use wood to heat their homes. And so we're focusing on how people can do that more efficiently or even switch to cleaner uh, methods of heating their homes. But women and girls, of course, are the ones, especially girls, who are gathering the firewood or the dung or whatever is being used for that fuel. So there's a really, really strong connection between uh, women and girls and health and safety when they're out gathering this wood. Uh, that can often be an issue. And even, you know, girls needing to stay out of school because they need to spend so many hours of the day gathering firewood, especially in mountain regions where the, you know, the amount of wood that's available because of deforestation is much lesser. So those are the two big ones right now. And they're the ones that are actually growing. There are other things like diesel vehicles, diesel generators. Those tend to be going down right now for air quality reasons. Uh, but but the, the big two really in terms of scale are, are open burning and uh, stoves of various sorts all around the world. Sure. And I hope we'll, we'll in a few minutes get to a little bit more of your action in those spaces and the burning um, 
uh, in agriculture and in the, the stove context uh, to learn some tan tangible examples. But for now, Christina, I did want to turn back to you and ask if you could explain what gaps in permafrost research is the Permafrost Pathways Project attempting to fill, and why is that research important for an audience of probably non-scientists? Thanks. Yeah, um, Permafrost Pathways has four main components. They're not actually all of them science or research components. But the first one I would like to mention is that we are working towards building a carbon monitoring network across the Arctic. So the Arctic is really, really big. And I think that's a thing that's really, really important to always understand. And it's cold, the climate is really harsh. And so taking measurements in the Arctic is not an easy task, especially if you want to measure something throughout the entire year and not just during the growing season when it's a little nicer and less cold. So building a carbon monitoring network is important so that we get an idea of where the carbon is coming out and how much of it is coming out and whether it's carbon dioxide or methane. And it's not useful if you just have two or three different locations across the Arctic, because then you only get an idea about those few points. So a, a monitoring network means multiple locations across the entire Arctic, and you're trying to build these uh, stations where you measure the carbon fluxes that are representative for a larger area. And so, Permafrost Pathways is uh, building new towers in new locations, but we are also maintaining towers that have already been measuring for a long time, which is a really great thing. It may take advantage of collaborations with other research institutions and provides long-term records, which is really, really crucial. We don't just want one year of measurements. We really want measurements for a longer time. So this carbon monitoring network in, in the Arctic is, is one really main important component of permafrost pathways. And then a second component is that we are developing a more accurate model that can represent permafrost processes to estimate carbon emissions from the Arctic. And um, right now, most of the global climate models do not account for carbon emissions from permafrost. And even though we just heard how important those emissions are, they're not accounted for when we do projections into the future for carbon budget estimates. And one of the reasons for that is that a lot of the processes are very complicated and they're specific to the Arctic. And so they need to, yeah, we need a lot of um, people time and computational time to include these processes. And that's one thing that Pathways is also focusing on. And then, so these are probably more than two science components. And then a less science component is really to work towards adaptation, which refers to taking actions to moderate the harm for Arctic communities in response to climate change. There are communities in the Arctic that already really strongly feel the changes happening to permafrost. And then as a last component of permafrost pathways, um, we are working towards informing international climate policy. Was by that's where we actually work quite a bit with Pam Pearson already. Um, it's to make to help to provide the numbers and estimates for carbon emissions from permafrost so that they can be accounted for. And if if you have a if you work towards emission targets and you're omitting a major source, you're vastly 
underestimating what's happening and you're just being inaccurate. And we really want to keep the warming to a low level. And for that, we need to account for all the sources of emissions. So I want to jump back to the component of the project that is focused on adaptation, because I know that Permafrost Pathways is working with 10 Alaska Native um, communities to develop climate adaptation frameworks. Can you explain your process for working with these Native communities, and how do you incorporate the tribe's unique needs into the project, especially in terms of these adaptation plans? Yeah, there are many different um, Alaska Native communities that are feeling the impacts of permafrost thaw really strongly, and many of them are directly located along the coastlines. And so they are impacted by erosion and flooding, for example, but also by really thawing permafrost and then their houses falling apart, literally. And one aspect is that um, these people are feeling the impacts the most, and they have a lot of experience from many decades of observing their own land. So there's a lot of indigenous knowledge that we, as Western science scientists, can uh, combine, and then we can come up with the best solution that works for these communities. And our role really is to listen to what um, indigenous knowledge holders have experienced and what they need, rather than us telling them what they need to do. So I think that is a really important component that we are working towards. Absolutely. And one more follow-up on that before I jump back to Pam, if I may. You know, I, I know there could be a point, especially in these critically important, as we said, canary in the coal mine type regions where, you know, a, a tribe might choose to relocate in now or in the future. And I was wondering how the permafrost pathways team would seek to assist in decision making around these sorts of um, relocation plans if it gets to that point, because I imagine that's a really complicated decision to make. It absolutely is. And there are many things to consider. One aspect is you want to ensure that if relocation does happen, that you are moving to a better location. And for that, you want uh, good maps of thaw risk, for example, you want to know that the new location um, is having either less thaw or it is at a higher elevation, so not low laying, but high laying areas. And then there's going to be less inundation, which means the surface of uh, the landscape will not be underwater anytime soon. So that is one important component. And then what we can provide them with are these thaw maps or, yeah, that are at the local scale, a lot of the science that otherwise is being done works at the 50 to 100 kilometer scale, which is huge. And that is not as helpful when you're trying to think about a few kilometers of relocate where you want to relocate your village to. So that's another thing that's important. And a third one I would like to mention is the uh, time scale. We're, we need numbers for the next five to 10 years. And a lot of the climate models go 50 to 100 years out, which is super important. It is really far out and not of imminent use. So there are there's some mismatch in the science uh, that is not too applicable for relocation. So we are working towards those goals. 
That's really fascinating and such important work. Um, Pam, I am going to turn back to you now. You know, we're talking about adaptation from one perspective when it comes to permafrost pathways. And I want to talk adaptation and mitigation with regards to some of the um, on-the-ground projects that ICCI has facilitated, as we said before, related to deinstitutionalizing agricultural burning or promoting the use of cleaner cook stove and combined cooking heating stove um, you know, altering those practices, maybe instituting more efficient practices in terms of burning, et cetera. Can you tell us a couple of examples of, of what these projects might look like, where they've been active, any, any big successes you've had in that space? Yeah, we've been working on this really since the beginning, uh, and we've worked in places as far afield as uh, actually in the beginning in uh, Russia. We've worked in Ukraine. We're currently working in Ecuador. We've worked in uh, Punjab in India, which is close to the Himalayas. And we've even done some work for Nigeria that was interested in addressing this. Um, so really spreading the word. And the, the main message about this is it is actually an adaptation method because what to do is simply not to burn the stubble. Uh, and it means that the fields look really dirty because you've got the stubble there, but rather than plowing, you use something called a drill to drill a little hole into the soil, drop the seed into that hole, and then the farmer needs to use less fertilizer, needs to use less fuel because you're not passing over the field multiple times, say with the plow. Um, but also in a drier climate, the roots of the, the dead stubble hold more moisture. And so for that reason, it's more resistant to drought. Conversely, when you have extreme weather events with extreme rain, you don't lose the soil to erosion the way you do if you especially burn it. Because when you think about it, when you're burning the stubble, you're burning those first few inches of soil also. It becomes very hot. It becomes very brittle. It's prone to erosion. In many places in Western Canada, they outlawed burning after the Dust Bowl because there was such an association between this huge erosion of the soil and the fact that they burned the stubble after the harvest of, of wheat or other kinds of grains. And so our main message actually is focused on the farmers and focused on their needs. And we tend not to talk a lot about the impact of black carbon on climate change. In some places, like in Peru, where we've also worked, it was the farmers themselves who brought it up because they know how reliant they are on nearby glaciers for their water. But the, the bad news uh, that I, I you know, can't miss saying is that it really is carbon dioxide. Uh, it's CO2 emissions from fossil fuels. That is what is driving climate change. Addressing black carbon can help a little bit around the edges, but the, the real you know, emphasis needs to be on cutting fossil fuel use. And so that's a big part of, of what we do. But in the meantime, if we can help people to adapt by you know, means that also decrease their, their emissions of black carbon, that's all to the good. Um, but it's not gonna save the climate, uh, solve the climate crisis, unfortunately. Really helpful um, context there. We do have a little over five minutes left in this session because time flies when you're having fun. Um, but I do have another question to get to at least for each of you. Um, and and I think, Pam, your, your last comment alludes to this really well. 
Um, you mentioned in your introduction how ICCI does have a role in climate policy settings, and I was wondering if you could very briefly tell us about any tangible impacts that you've had in this space. Yes, well, I think that the most important thing that we do uh, is to bring the science to the policymakers, especially at the annual climate negotiations, which are known as COPS, Conference of Parties. Uh, we host a cryosphere pavilion and we have various speakers. You have the head of the Inuit Cir Circumpolar Council, Lisa Kapuklo, who is speaking in the upper right there about Arctic sea ice and the loss of that impacting her people. Uh, a sea ice scientist to the left, we sponsor early career scientists. And so spreading the word through being present in the climate negotiations is one way we do it. A second way that uh, bore fruit finally at COP27 was the creation of a group called Ambition on Melting Ice on sea level rise and mountain water resources. And that brought together 20 different countries, uh, not all of them cryosphere countries. It was everything from, you know, Iceland and Chile are, are co-leading this, but also signing the, the, the declaration were countries like Vanuatu and Samoa and Bangladesh and Senegal and uh, Liberia because they had understood that loss of cryosphere is impacting them directly. And really uh, one of the, the, the phrases that's being used increasingly is beyond limits of adaptation. Um, you know, Christina talked a bit about, you know, moving in, in a proper direction. And of course, if we end up hitting two degrees, Earth's path at two degrees, we were seeing sea levels of anywhere between 10 to 25 meters higher than where we are today. We don't know how long we can be at two degrees without triggering that kind of ice sheet loss, that kind of sea level rise, but you know, it might be a matter of a few decades, and then we can't turn the clock back until we get a new ice age which isn't in the, the interests of most humans and ecosystems either. And so just getting out the fact that, that this 1.5 limit is really important. It's not a nice thing to do. It's absolutely vital for billions of people, frankly, who are reliant on glaciers and snow for water or who live on coastlines and that's places like you know Miami. Um, and for polar ocean acidification, there are hot spots way to the south and right off Washington State, for example, is one of them. So it, it concerns all of us, and that's what we're trying to say. Absolutely. Well, as we start wrapping up this discussion today, I did want to leave with a question for both of you that perhaps could, could serve as your final thoughts. And that, that question is, what is one tip or best practice that you would like to share with individuals who want to contribute to protecting the cryosphere and its communities, even if they don't live in, let's say, the Arctic or Antarctic regions themselves? Um, so we'll start with Christina and Pam, I'll give you the final word. Thank you, Aubrey. I do love that question because it, it uh, gives an opportunity to say that everyone can contribute to um, conserving the cryosphere. I would always like to emphasize that. Uh, so while we have already committed to some extent to losing some permafrost, we have a lot of power to ensure we are not losing a lot of it. And I think that's where individual action comes into. So it is going to be a, a combination of individual action. Um, the energy sector needs to play a big role in this. The policy sector needs to play a big role in this and industry as well. 
but on the in individual level, we can all help preserve as much permafrost as possible by reducing our carbon footprint. And that means emitting as little carbon dioxide as possible. So individual action does matter. Thank you, Christina. And Pam, final word. Yes, I would say it would be spreading the word that preserving the cryosphere is important to the existence of all of us. It isn't something that's far away. It's something close by. And it is something that we can still do. The, the scientific community is absolutely unified by saying that we do have the power still to stay within 1.5 degrees. We're actually making a decision. And so sometimes I think people get you know, he, here's some of these messages and they're like, oh, everything's lost. I can't do anything. That is absolutely not the case. We absolutely have it in our power to prevent this from happening. We just have to decide to do it. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.